The most important person is the one right in front of you. The most important time is now because it's the only time you have. And the most important thing to do is do that person good. Welcome everyone to The Ultimate Shift. Join Ephraim Glick and leading figures in business and entertainment as they share their stories of regular people overcoming tremendous obstacles only to achieve happiness, success, and fulfillment. Are you ready to make the ultimate shift in your life? Today, our guest is Joachim, or Josh. He's a talented musician here, one of the most talented musicians in Nashville that I have ever met. And I've got to know him a little bit, and he has an incredible story, so I'm excited to dive into this and let you guys get to know Josh. Awesome. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about you. How did you end up in Nashville? How did I end up in Nashville? Well, that's a pretty interesting story for sure. I grew up in a little town called Selmer, Selmer, Tennessee, and it's about three hours uh, southwest of Nashville. It's a population of like 5,000 people. I go into my bank, everybody knows my name. So yeah, just a really small town. And inside that town, I mean, this story could get pretty long, so I'll try to give it in segments. Inside that town, there was a community called Rose Creek Village, and it was like a Christian community. And when I say community, this, I mean, we all lived on one piece of property together, multiple families to houses. What people think the Amish people are. Yeah. That's what people think the Amish people are. It's like everyone lives in one, yeah. one yes. place, but we actually don't, but you actually oh, did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were basically trying to replicate what you read in the second chapter of Acts, which a lot of people probably don't know what that is in today's world. But yeah, it was basically the early church where everybody lived and had together and had things in common, took care of each other. And so the whole idea of this church was to just really act that out on a very real level. And so I lived there. It was in that little town. It was like a, originally it was just a big cow pasture. Is this like Waco? Did you watch that? <laughs> I haven't seen the show, but I've heard the actual story of Waco. And but it, is it similar, like a big house or whatever? Well, and everyone's when we, in that? when we first so the place originated in Geneva, Florida, and then the people in Geneva, Florida, met a family in Bethel Springs, Tennessee, which is an even smaller town than Selma, Tennessee. And the people in Bethel Springs had a piece of property, like forty acres, and they said, hey, you guys should bring this up here so we can all live together. Because in Geneva, they were living in different zip codes even. Yeah. You know? And so they wanted it to be even more intentional where everybody was together. And on that piece of property, there was a giant house. And they actually called it Mash Them In, like Mash Them In, because they tried to fit so many people in this uh, two-story house with a basement. And it, I wish I knew the exact number of people living in that house, but I want to say it was at least 50 or 60 people. I mean, it was, wow. it was an, insane. And you but, lived in that, but this or yeah. was this where it originated? As a young kid, I lived in that that wow. giant house on that forty acre property, and unfortunately, the family that invited everybody to live there eventually decided they didn't want to be a part of it, and so they kicked everybody off. And that was like a crucial moment in this community to decide: Are we all going to go our separate ways, or are we going to try to maintain this community? Because we didn't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the businesses were within the community, kind of yeah. like probably the Amish. And we had low income. We used to like, guys used to dumpster dive and bring like food back. No way. I'm not even kidding, man. It was, wow. it was, yeah. So we, we left that piece of property. Like everybody decided we would rather stay together and risk it than go our separate ways. That's how intentional this thing was. Everybody was that, you know, yeah. attached. Mm -hmm. And so we found a piece of property in Selmer, out, right outside of Selmer technically, but in Selmer. 
and it was nothing but just a giant cow pasture. The land was actually, I mean, it was, it hadn't been taken care of very well. And I just remember like, you would see dust devils on the roads. Like whoever had had cattle on this land, you know, had let the cattle just destroy it. Mm -hmm. And so we moved there and we we lived in like, literally we bought these giant army tents. And we like lived under army tents and like little camping tents. You would have your own like little camping tent underneath the army tent. And then we also had taken school buses and gutted them out, taken all the seats out and turned them into like little mobile homes. And so, yeah, so I've lived in a tent, I've lived in a bus. And at that time I was probably like 10 years old. So that was like, for a 10 year old, that was incredible. Like we yeah. had a pond and it was like, just, it was like a never ending camping trip, you know? And so that place eventually developed into, um, into a more urban kind of, I mean, not definitely not urban, but like it eventually now today, actually it still exists and it looks like a neighborhood, you know, people have built houses. And, really? Yeah. Yeah. And so I was groomed and raised, man, in that culture. And it was, like I said, very religious, very, but there were, there were a lot of cool things about it. I mean, it was, uh, I would describe it as like Amish meets hippie. Because mm-hmm. you like the wom- the women in the beginning did wear head coverings and the men had like long beards, kind of like what I'm growing right now. Which <laughs> this is because of quarantine. I don't usually look this disheveled. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean ponytails, and that's kind of where I grew up. And it was very very Christian. As a man, looking back on you know the theology and and what I was taught, I definitely have <laughs> some different views. You know, I wouldn't say I have a lot of resentment or bitterness towards my childhood. I don't think there's such thing as a perfect childhood. I think you take yeah. what you get and you use yeah. it how you use it. Yeah. But yeah, that's where it started. And to skip ahead quite a bit, uh, years later, I was working in a warehouse that was actually owned by a member of that community. And I'd always done music. From the time I was like 13, I picked up my very first instrument was the button accordion. Was this a dream that you had as a kid was like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a musician? No, no. So initially as a kid, because it was such a religious environment, I wanted to be a missionary. Like I wanted to spread the gospel. I wanted to die for Jesus. I had like this very... uh, That was how you pictured your life at 35, 40, whatever. Married with children. Yeah. And probably like on in Africa or or, yeah, some missions thing going on. And you get a little older, you become a little more selfish and you think about what you want as a person. And you also start to question all the views yeah. and like a lot of what was driving me towards the missionary thing was the leaders in the community. And I was kind of trying to impress those people, you know, and, and at some mm-hmm. point you become an adult and you have to pave your own trail. So what made you question it, though? Because I think from my experience growing up Amish and yours is a lot similar here. But like there's people that don't question it. Right. Ever. Right. Like yeah. or if they do, it's kind yeah. of hidden. So. Was there a thing or a time that you were like, okay, that first light bulb went off that it was like, maybe this isn't right for me? You know, I would say one thing for sure. I think I've always been, since I was a little kid, I asked way too many questions. I've been accused of that from the time I was very young. I just can't stop asking. I'm very curious. Yeah. But one big thing in my life was my parents were separated. So my dad was never a part of this religious Mm -hmm. group. In fact, he hated it. That's a whole nother story. He was a very unstable person. But at some point around the time I was like 13, he came back into my life and he tried to get custody of my two sisters and I. And that became a big ordeal where his whole family and my mom's family was on his side initially because they didn't like the community either. And they all came on board to try to get us out. And their ambush was basically to come in and get us kids 
and then hope my mom that would lure my mom out of the community. And so it was like a whole strategy plan they had because like my grandparents on my mother's side would have never wanted us to live with my dad because mm-hmm. they knew how unstable he was. But they thought they could figure this they out. They could right? utilize it yeah. as a tool. And so he came back into my life and he wasn't able to get custody. He was able to get visitation. And so every other weekend I would have to go see him, which was a completely different world than the one I was living in. And so mm-hmm. it was inevitable that I was going to start questioning even more yeah. because suddenly I'm pulled away from everything I know. You're and I'm, a different world. And I'm in a different world where the people in this world don't like the world that I was living in. And so I was forced to question. I mean, the accusations they, they were putting against this community were pretty intense. Like, just making, like, accusations about, you know, like, there were sexual things going on. Like, they were just, and as a 13-year-old kid, I don't understand yeah. half of this. It just created more questions. Mm-hmm. And I was able to have more perspective because it wasn't just the community. And so I would say... Um, between that starting around the time I was 13 to the community itself evolving. That was one thing I did appreciate about this community. I feel like the Amish kind of maintain the culture they have. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I respect that, that people have enough conviction to keep things the same way. I feel like that's unhealthy, but I also yeah. think it takes a lot of self-control not to, and a lot of discipline not to let things change. Yeah. But uh, we changed a lot. And by the time I was probably 16 or 17, we looked a lot like the rest of the world. And so there was a lot more influences there as well. And so the combination of my dad and his family being in my life and then just the progressiveness of the community evolving, a lot, most of my friends have all left. Like yeah. The population of that community has died. I mean, it's, yeah. it's gone way down and it's totally changed. And if you went there today, you would literally feel like you're in a neighborhood and there's a lot more freedom for people to decide if they want to live there or if they want to be a part of the church, which was never the case growing up. So at, let's say, 10 years old, 10, 12 years old, what was your biggest fear? My biggest fear. Your biggest fear? I, honestly, doing the wrong thing. Really? Yeah. I, I feel like I, I was always a really fearful kid. And I mm-hmm. think I got a lot of that from my mom because my mom was so determined to find God. I mean, she was like the most passionate person about Jesus and God. And I think she came from a place of feeling like... You know, people chase Jesus for different reasons. I feel like one reason people chase God and religion is because they truly are in love with it. And another reason is because they're afraid of going to hell. And I feel like my mom's, and I wouldn't say this about her now as much. We've had a lot of conversations. But in the beginning, it was a fear, a fear-based approach to finding God. And so that was obviously given to me. And the community I lived in was very much about doing the right thing. And so I always had this fear of like, almost like it became almost like a Mm self-hatred. Like I was like, I'm imperfect. I got to do better. I got to do better. Mm -hmm. So as a 10 year old kid for a guy, 10 years old, I was way too hard on myself. Everyone told me that, but yeah, I would say one of my greatest fears was messing up. Would you say that has influenced you in a good or bad way to who you are today? Well, I would most definitely say fear is a negative influence. Um, but then again, if you try to deal with it, it takes a weakness to find a strength. And so the process of learning how to let go of that fear has been a good thing. So without the fear, there would have never been the journey to lose it. And I feel like yeah. I'm still on that journey, but the fear itself, no, I feel like it was detrimental because it, yeah. it held me back from just experiencing the beauty of life, which is life is amazing. Yeah. 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 We talked yesterday about that. I want to touch on um, this thing of self-condemnation. Mm. Um, do you feel that, maybe some religions or because it's so religious and, and the fear of going to hell, like you mm-hmm. said, or whatever, 
as you grow older, it turns into insecurities. hundred percent. Yeah. And so dive in on that. You said some things yesterday that I want to really touch on. Like, awesome. how do you feel that it influences you? And then how do you get over those insecurities? What's, what's the mindset? What's the thought process that you start getting out of that? If you feel like you're never enough because you're trying to stay out of hell, if you will, or right. be enough for God, if you will, um, whomever your God is to you, mm. what is the first step? What's the first process of getting out of that? Mm. How do you start changing your mindset with that? That's a pretty big question. I think like what we talked about yesterday, and I, I know that you've said this too, is that the very beginning of the journey is recognizing it. Because I think that you you can hold on to those things. You can hold mm. on to that system of rating yourself based on how good you are in terms of what you're doing and you become a people use this example a lot like you're a human doing instead of a human being you can't just be Mm -hmm. and um i think so the first thing is obviously recognizing it because you can be blinded to it for sure um and fear yeah it absolutely creates that self-condemnation and i think the next step um you know as humans we typically want to either run from something or fight it. And I was telling you that I'd run across this book recently uh, called Letting Go. And it's just a whole new outlook on how to deal with the problems you have is to let go of them. Yeah. And, you know, in religion, so much is about overcoming a problem. And that oftentimes magnifies the problem because it's all you're thinking about. And suddenly the concept of just letting go of fear, letting go of pride, and the similarities between pride and fear. And, and it's all created, especially in worlds where the whole uh, theology is to, to do what's right and base who you are as a person on those deeds, yeah. those righteous deeds. Yeah. And so I would say, recognize it and learn to let go of it. That most simply put, and obviously easier said than done. Yeah. But for me, it's like when those emotions hit me, the first thing is I'm aware, like, okay, that's what this is. So what do you do then? So like if you were telling someone that is really struggling with the self-condemnation or insecurity or something and they say, okay, I recognize it, but, but now what? Right. So what is the step that you took in overcoming that? Was it uh, something you did physically, mentally, or was it just practice of saying, okay, I'm not going there? Yeah. Well... To be completely honest with you, man, I'm doing it. I I haven't done it. And I think I'll be doing it for the rest of my life. If I was speaking to a person, I think the thing that has always helped me the most is meeting people who are, because anyone that tells you that they've overcome or or that they truly like that's no longer a problem, I think most of the time is an unreality. I think we're always going to be dealing with this. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I guess I would tell that person is you're okay. You're not alone. Like, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with this. And because yeah. that's always given me so much freedom. And like when we yeah. talked yesterday, one of my favorite things about our conversations is that we relate mm-hmm. on this very so subject. So much. Because you grew up Amish. I grew up in this community very much like an Amish community. And to have somebody that's like, you're not alone. We have the same struggles. Exactly. And all of a sudden you realize it's, yeah. it's not you. It's a humanity thing. It's a condition that yeah. you were conditioned to believe right. that then. And unfortunately, in this situation, a lot of times when there's your growing up in something super religious mm-hmm. uh, and we hit on this a little bit yesterday it's almost that prideful thing of I'm different than you mm-hmm. and you're proud of that because of how you're living that I never felt that but it's I think it's there yeah um, and then the other side of it is you're always trying to be enough and you can never be enough because you're told it you're never enough right. uh, whether you're going to church or your parents and so 
there's that insecurity that follows you that then right. you have to grow out of or, or yeah. you, you realize it's it's not serving me. Mm-hmm. And so then you go back to doing some, you know, you right. have to figure out a different way. Yeah. So if in that regard, if you could tell your 10, 13-year-old self anything with what you know now, if you had that child, if you could go to him and say anything about what's the advice that you would give him? Oh my gosh. I would tell my 10, 12 year old, 13 year old, 14 year old, all the way up to, to myself today, relax, enjoy life. Stop being so hard on yourself and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to put your foot out there and don't be ashamed of yourself for the mistakes you're going to make. Because the funny thing about mistakes is they teach you more than anything else. And so, yeah. yeah, I would just, I feel like my younger self was like this. And I would just say, yeah, step out there, live yeah. life. It's okay. I mean, it would all just be a lot of reassurance that it's going to be okay. And that you have fun. Honestly, yeah. just have fun. Enjoy yeah. life. And yeah. which has been the general theme. Like I was telling you yesterday of my life is I feel like that's the message. God, the universe, whoever's speaking to me, you know, I believe it's God is telling me to enjoy life. So, we talked about the thing yesterday I want you to touch on. Um, we should have been recording this yesterday. <laughs> you said, tell the story of the Chinese. Oh, for um, sure. Whatever yeah. you call that. The fortune cookie. Yeah. yeah. You barely ever ate out. You, you didn't have money to eat out most times. You went out. And what did the fortune cookie say the one time? Yeah. So, yeah, I've always had a, a thing with fortune cookies. I'm crazy. I believe that they speak to me. Yeah. Um, Even though they're not always written right. <laughs> Grammatically, yeah. yeah. Misspelled. Miss, miss, some misspelling. Um, little grammar errors occasionally. So like you said, I rarely did eat out, but I was at a Chinese restaurant with a friend. And, you know, we finished our meal and, of course, we... And you're what, 13? I was probably, I think I was 13, yeah. 13, yeah. The age. Somewhere but, yeah, in there. young teenager. And... Uh, I get my fortune cookie, break it open, and you know I'm already anticipating God sending me a message, and I mm-hmm. pull the thing out. And it says at this point you still 100% believed in this religion, 100% thing. Yeah, oh, hardcore. Okay. You're still thinking I'm going to be a missionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I broke it open and I pull out the fortune. And it says it would do you well to expend your business. Now I didn't know what the word expend actually meant, and I've looked it up later, and it, it actually means something to do with like letting go. <laughs> But um, the lady that was with me explained it to me as it means you need to do more. And I think it was honestly supposed to be expand your business. I think that's what they meant to write on that fortune cookie. Well, immediately as the serious kid I am, I started thinking about all the businesses I was involved in in life. And at the time, I wanted to write books and I wanted to write and just speak or whatever. Mm-hmm. And just inspirational kind of stuff. Yeah. And... Um, so I was like, well, what do I need to do? I need to work harder on something. And I just, my brain went to work and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go grab another fortune cookie. Probably we'll find out. This is the same night. So you, same. you're reading the one fortune cookie. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to grab another one. See yeah. what this says. Cause I yeah. can't figure this one out. Yeah. I'm like this. I'm going to find out. So yeah. I go over to the back. They had them all in a, you know, in a little basket over, over near the front. And I grabbed another one and I broke it open and I pulled out the uh, fortune and it said the exact same thing. It would do you well to expend your business. And at that point, I stopped and I told myself, I'm going to spend some real serious time figuring this out because I take these things seriously. Mm-hmm. And the chances of getting two of the same fortune cookies right in a row, because, I mean, she didn't get the same one I got. Yeah. It's not like they were all the same fortune cookie, but I, they were literally, I happened to get two fortune cookies yeah. that had the same message. 
it was probably a month later before I ended up at another Chinese restaurant because, like I said, you know, we didn't we didn't eat out very often, and I, you know, sitting down at this Chinese buffet and I finished my meal and. You know, the waitress brings out the fortune cookies, and I just knew in that moment, today I'm going to find out what my business is. I mean, today's the day. Mm-hmm. I, I had the faith of a child, a 13-year-old kid, in love with Jesus. Yeah. And I broke open the fortune cookie, pulled out the fortune, and I looked at it, and I, this is not a made-up story. This is entirely 100% true. I read that fortune cookie, and it literally said, the primary business of life is to enjoy it. That, that's what it said. That's so crazy. And... That's a story I'll never forget because yeah. I needed to hear that, especially at that time in my life. Because at that time, I was a teenager dealing yeah. with all the teenage things in a very religious setting. And I was constantly hard on myself. And yeah. I felt like God, the universe, literally looked at me and said, the business, you do need to work harder on your business. But the business you need to improve in is enjoying life because you were put you're given yeah. a chance to live. It's a beautiful yeah. opportunity. And you're missing out on the whole purpose of it. So did that in any way change your path, do you feel, as far as were you, did you feel like you were really enjoying life? Or what was your step that you took after that? After the fortune cookie, you know, keep in mind I was a kid. So mm-hmm. I was still, I was, you know, still under my, my mom and the community. So it wasn't like I was able to just do some massive change. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I would say I put that message in my back pocket and I've held on to it my whole life. I would say I remember sharing it with people in church and telling different people the story. And I mean, it was inspirational to people, but it wasn't like there wasn't any like necessarily a drastic change in me. I feel like it's just been like a, it's been a theme throughout my life. When I hit a brick wall, I remind myself of that story. Mm-hmm. And when I'm at my lowest points or or just having a, a hard day, whatever, I, that story is always there. It's always like, yeah. it's like something I keep in my wallet, like a picture yeah. Yeah. of my kid that I don't have. You know? That's such a cool story. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky thinking. to have experienced yeah. that. Man. Yeah, uh, let's dive into a little bit more about like who you are today. Like okay. what, you're playing music, you're making a hit. I mean, your music is some of the best music I've heard in town. It's, it's, I remember it's the first time I met you because I was watching you play, and I was yeah. like, and I and I'm not a live music person, yeah. But I was like, this is insane, and, and and you sang the song, I'm sorry, yeah. I think, and uh, I was going through something to where I probably would have would have cried if I wasn't in a bar at the time, oh, man. But anyway, we connected after that. Yeah, I told you I how much that I like the song, and then we ended up becoming friends. That was at the doghouse. At the doghouse, that's yeah. right. And so, so many people. So you decided you want to get into music because you enjoyed music, or at some point you started pursuing that path. Yeah. So many people that try to do that or that get into music, they give up or they quit before they have hit kind of what they wanted to do. Okay. Why do you think that is? And how did you... Why, why, did, they, why did they quit? Why do they quit? And how did you... Because there's so much talent in this town. Mm-hmm. What do you do to set yourself apart because you've obviously set yourself apart okay. in some way yeah what do you do to stay on top of your career to stay on top of your music yeah and to put stuff out there to be different that that at the end of the day you feel like you're making a difference in what it is you're doing okay well to answer the like the first i feel like that's a kind of a two-part uh, question like because there you're right a lot of people come to town and they leave mm-hmm. um a lot of people start on a, a lot of different journeys and they turn around a lot of I, 
Yeah, I guess maybe the better question is, what would you say to someone if they're coming here and they want to get to where you've gotten? I mean, you're playing in these venues. You've obviously made an impact. Um, people love watching you play. So what's your advice to someone that wants to get to fulfill their dream in some yeah. way or another? I think I would ask them a question. And I think they need to ask themselves this question. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Because someone, people will tell you this across the board of music. You need to love music. You need to love songwriting. You need to love the, some aspect of that to keep you doing it. And I've seen so many people come to this town and I can usually, and I don't want to sound mean, but like just by listening to their music, I, I work part-time in a music bar that I see tons and tons of songwriters come through and I sit there and I judge every single one of them while I'm serving drinks. And you can just hear an artist. You just know you hear an artist and you know it because you feel their pain. They have something to say. And they also love what they're doing. And I think that there's a lot of people that come to Nashville or L.A. or New York or wherever they decide to go to pursue a career because they want to be famous. Mm-hmm. And they, or they want to be a pop star. Or they've seen these movies mm-hmm. or they've watched the shows and, they, and it's, it, it's driven by something that's going to die. Okay. It's going to die. And so first and foremost, I would ask them, why did you come to town? Like, why are you pursuing music? Mm-hmm. What, what is driving it? And I know people personally that have come here to do music that have left because it's hard. It's really yeah. hard. And I feel like I have somewhat of a vision and I by no means feel like I've arrived at where that vision ends. But I also learned that when I came to town, like everybody else, in my head, everything looked a lot different than it really was. Really? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like you give success a name. Everybody has a definition for what success is and whatever career they're pursuing. And I feel like mine was here. But I feel like with music, it's increments, mm-hmm. right? And so the first thing you probably need to do, which is what I'm trying to do now more, is make an income. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Not become a star, because what right. does that even mean? Yeah. And music now is more controlled than ever by the artist. It used to be completely controlled by the labels. Right. But because of free streaming and you know all these new platforms with social media, artists can eliminate so many different parties Mm-hmm. and create their own. And yeah. so it's like the Wild West in music right now. You'll see these independent artists emerge and then boom, they're yeah. huge. But then in that same fashion, they can disappear just as fast. Exactly, exactly. And so I think it all comes down to why you do it. You have to have a strong enough passion for the music itself, for the songwriting. And for me, as a kid, I've always wanted to write things. And I don't know for sure if all I'll do or if music will be the main thing I do. At this moment in time, it is. But like I feel like what I know for sure is that I want to do some form of art whether it's writing whether it's music and it, it's all kind of in one vein and it's a, and there there is no wrong it's okay no. to pivot out of that exactly. If that's what, exactly what is the hardest thing about the entertainment industry what's the worst thing about the entertainment industry Man. that comes out in people mm. that's a really good question i think that man for me personally uh when you're a creative person, I mean, and everybody has different skills, I find that you know some people are really good marketers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, the, the people that are really good marketers aren't the greatest musicians, aren't the greatest artists. Yeah. Um, and you can succeed because it is truly a business. At the yeah. end of the day, if you want to make money, it's a business. It's not just art. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I, I've had trouble with that side of it, with the marketing. Um, because I just want to create things. And I feel like musicians are a little bit narcissistic. Artists are a little narcissistic and they can be happy with just 
creating their music and, and believing themselves that it's amazing and getting a few nice friends to tell them the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I guess making that breakthrough, there's areas where it starts to feel a little bit compromised when you're trying to, all right, I got to make this post on Instagram and, yeah. and trying to meet the expectations of the public. Like, well, people, this is what's working, right? So do this. Yeah. And ironically, a lot of the times doing something different than what everybody else is doing works better. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know, like when I first got here, shortly after I got here, I was approached by some publishers because I feel uh, when you come to town, I learned pretty quickly a couple steps you should take. You need to get a publishing deal, right? And what that means is you're going to get an advance by publishers who are going to try to develop you as an artist. They're going to own the publishing on your songs and they're going to try to push you to labels so eventually get a deal. It's a very common road mm-hmm. to a successful career in music and it's kind of become an older one now. But when I, like literally like a year or so after I got here, I already had these publishers talking to me. You know, people in town were like, you're like an anomaly, like this doesn't happen this quickly, mm-hmm. right? And so I immediately, because I was very naive, I kind of put on the brakes and I was like, well, these guys are gonna do it for me, right? Well, we sort of dated each other, if you will, for about a year and there was a lot of like empty promises. And mm-hmm. I don't have any hard, I really don't have hard feelings towards these guys, but I do think that musicians and the thing that I hate about this town um, is musicians aren't always good business people, right? And my buddy told me something. He actually said this the other night. He said this to me multiple times. There's more money to be made selling the dream than living the dream. Wow. These publishers were sort of selling me something. And there's so many little operations in town. There's like, you can go to, you can go to a, and I don't want to put these people down because I actually know the people that own this place. I hope they never watch this podcast, but I'm going <laughs> to use them as an example. I'm going to use two examples of people I love, and I think there's a lot of cool aspects to what they're doing. But they're another example of where there's literally an economy created because so many songwriters come to this town. Like people are utilizing that because yeah. these people don't know the first thing about where to start. And so you have – there's a place on 18th Avenue called uh, The Workshop, right? And it's cool. I've written there. It's a, and it's literally a – a building that's close enough to 16th Avenue to where you'll feel like, oh, you're like you're next to all these publishing houses where the signed writers are writing, and you're writing in a building um, where these rooms are rented out, and you can buy a membership just like a gym. Well, my question is, why can't you write at your house? Yeah. Why are you paying this extra money? And then there's another organization called NSAI, Nashville Songwriters Association, and I, they're supposedly doing some good things with the money that they. To support songwriters, so I don't want to like bash on either of these places entirely because it's a business, and, it, yeah. and you have the opportunity to you know pay for the you know or stay at home or stay at home. It's totally up to you. But the NS- NSAI is similar; they have writing rooms, and then they have okay. these things called pitch to publishers, where you can pitch your songs to publishers, and there's pretty much a zero percent success rate with getting something cut. But that's across the board in town. Yeah. So I guess having said that, it comes down to that quote my friend said. There's more money to be made selling the dream than living it. And there's examples of that all over Nashville. Artists are some of the most naive people when it comes to business because the focus is so much on yourself and they're, you're kind of narcissistic. And all it takes is they're the easiest sell in the world. You tell them, oh, your stuff is great. You should, you know. Yeah. And then they're in. Yeah. They're in. What is the biggest failure you've had this year, personally? Man, that's a personal question. I meant to go there. Good. I'm glad you did. Well, I'll tell you this. This year, this was a hard year. This was a hard year, man. Um, so since I've come to town, and, and and even like this podcast itself is kind of kind of making me feel a little bit convicted because you know you're asking me about 
you're kind of talking to me like I'm a professional musician and the God honest truth is I'm not. I'm like those, I'm literally like the people that I'm talking to right now. Um, and so that kind of goes in line with, I feel like I came to town to do music, right? And a very common thing that happens, This and this is another thing I hate. You said the, some of the things I hate the most about this industry. A lot of people, um, not only this is a music town, it's a drinking town, right? We're over here drinking. Cheers. Yeah, yeah cheers. <laughs> cheers. We're over here drinking, right? Well, the, one of the first things I did when I moved here, and I'd never done this, like I came fresh out of a church environment. Talk about culture shock. I started bartending. Yeah. And there's a scene in bartending that coincides very much with music. It's a very common uh, occupation for songwriters. I would say if you're in Nashville and you're at a bar and you see somebody in their mid-20s or you know, you know, serving you a drink, and they have an interesting haircut. They're probably trying to, yeah. They're probably trying to pursue music, <laughs> and so I would like everybody else got this job, and I feel like I, I've kind of, kind of it will put you in neutral because the money can actually be pretty good and it can be pretty instantaneous. It's very instantaneous, and it's fun, right? Because you're drinking, and and then other things can come in, drugs, and you know, a lot of distractions. And I feel like. This is a town with a lot of distractions from your career. Yeah. yeah. And because uh, you have to make ends meet. You don't just move to Nashville. Even outside of music, it's a town with distractions. Oh. I, there's just so much huh. going on. And so between my job of bartending and drinking more than I normally do, and then also ending up in a relationship, which is great. Relationships are awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I feel like that was another thing that I, I've let things for me this year... I was too preoccupied with things that were pulling me away. And I think between this quarantine because of the virus, I went through a breakup right before that happened. It's helped me refocus a little bit on why I moved to town, you know, mm-hmm. because you start to eliminate some of those distractions. And yeah, I think I would say to anyone moving to town, you're going to be bombarded. Yeah. You're going to be bombarded with, with so many distractions and so many alternate routes to your destination that will just take you away from it. So if you could write out your ideal life, the perfect life, money was no object, uh, you had everything you wanted, what would that look like? Man. Well, the narcissist in me would like to say that I'd be playing Bridgestone Arena, man, or okay. Nissan Stadium, but I would be... Let's go with that. Okay. Well, yeah, that side of me wants to show my music to as many people as I possibly can. Okay. Um, and I think that... And I think it doesn't entirely come from a place of just wanting to be famous. I just, ever since I was young, felt like I had something to say. So you're playing at Bridgestone Arena. You're selling out um, Radio City. You're living the tour life. You're, right. you're living that life. What's keeping you from that? What's keeping me from that? Well. What's the block? Well, I, okay. I think part of that comes down to my work ethic. Okay. I think part of that comes down to that's not entirely what I want, if I'm honest with myself, because I think that uh, another thing I do that I found actually very fulfilling is, I, is I'm a, a part of this, uh, this organization called Musicians on Call, and we go and we play in hospitals all over the city. Oh, cool. And some of the greatest moments I've had, in fact, the greatest moments I've had performing have been in that hospital. And it's kind of flipped my perspective a little bit. Like I said, when you move to town, the first answer I gave you is what I wanted when I came here. 
Yeah. You're humbled quite a bit when you move to town mm-hmm. and you, you become a little wiser on what it actually, what success actually means. Yeah. Because so many people that achieve what I essentially want are unhappy people. And we talked about this yesterday with, yeah. well, we talked about David. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think ultimately I, 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 like to, I like to use my music to inspire people, to move people. And nothing is more rewarding to me than when I play a song and I look into the audience and I see somebody that's being moved by that song, whether they're crying, whether they come up to me after the show and they, and it leads to us having a, a very vulnerable conversation. Mm-hmm. I think music breaks down some barriers and it yeah. makes people yeah. are able to relate with you and yeah. they're able to understand that they're not alone in their struggle and that, and, and that you touch on something that they haven't been able to explain. Like you're communicating mm-hmm. something for them with, that, with music because music has a way of communicating things that words will not communicate. Right. And so... I think ultimately, I just, like I said, I, feel, I say I feel like I have something to say which sounded so narcissistic. I, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's a connection I need to make with people. And that's what's yeah. made me want to share my music with as many people as I can. I don't want it to just be so that I can make a ton of money, which yeah. would be nice, man. There's yeah, no- but I get what you're saying. Yeah. That's, that's how you make the biggest impact with your music. Yeah. If, if you're playing in front of 3,000 people, it's obviously you're making a bigger impact mm-hmm. than, than five. Right. Why do you think people have such a hard time with vulnerability? Because you're you're super vulnerable. You're mm-hmm. you're always transparent. At least you are with me. Yeah. Um, I've spent. A why do you think with... people struggle with with vulnerability? Man, you know, because I am incredibly incredibly vulnerable. Um, and that may be a harder question for me to answer because I'm so vulnerable, and I feel like I've been this way most of my life. I think that. Our society paints a picture of what a human is supposed to mm-hmm. look and act like. And the picture they're painting is not a vulnerable one. Yeah. But I do feel like the interesting thing about the millennials and our generation is I feel like we, we crave authenticity on a different level than before. Um, and I don't know if that's just because we're sick and tired of what was. But I do think that I'm starting to see people a little more vulnerable. I think people take it in weird directions. Mm-hmm. Um, some people just use it as a means to get people to feel bad for them. I don't know. It's not always objective. But I think people have such a hard time being vulnerable because that's what they know. And also, obviously, because they don't want to get hurt. Because when you are vulnerable, you're, you're allowing the opportunity for someone to hurt you. Or for someone to have a perspective on you that's going to be that you might lose their interest in you or you might lose a friendship or they might be like, that was too much. You showed me too much. What I found, and this is why it shocks me that more people aren't vulnerable. I feel like humans are all like houses, right? And so if I want you to invite me over to dinner to your house, I'm going to open the doors to my house first and I'm going to let you come inside and I'm going to let you see what my house looks like and we're going to have dinner together and you're going to realize you're going to feel safe, safe enough that you're going to open your house up to me and let me into your house. And I don't know. I just I like that. And that's why I'm vulnerable because it's only done me good in life. What happens if you're not? What's the alternative? I think you're alone. I think you really are because even if you're not physically, because you're going to know, and then you may be the only person that knows this. You're going to know that everybody that knows you doesn't, doesn't really know actually you. know you. And the people that love you don't actually love you. They love the version of you that you're showing them. And so you're going to feel completely isolated in a room full of people. And the loneliest I've ever felt is when I'm at a party where I don't know anybody. Have you ever, you know what I'm talking about? It is the worst feeling. I would rather be sitting in my house watching Netflix Mm -hmm. all by myself 
than to be at some terrible party with a ton of people, music's playing, everybody's getting drunk, and I don't know a single person in the room. That's a lot of people that aren't vulnerable. I think that must be how they feel. That's like. essentially what it is. Yeah, it, it, it is, because you're surrounded by people who don't know you, and how can anyone who doesn't know you actually love you? You know, They yeah. may love you, yeah. but not you. I love that. Yeah. Love that. I'm gonna try to get through a couple more questions. So if, if you were put on a world stage where everyone is watching, not just America, okay. everyone, okay. and you're given five minutes to make a difference or an impact, what would you say? I'm given five minutes? You're given five minutes. <sighs> and everyone's watching you. Man, this, I wish I, wish I would have heard this. I'm like that this is spontaneous, but man, I'm given five minutes. You're given five minutes. And you're not told just the same. You can't prepare, you can't come up with some cool answer, you can't come up with, you're told, Josh. The world is watching, the president's sitting down, he's watching, all the foreign leaders of countries are watching you, and you have an opportunity to make a difference, to make an impact. This is your one shot. After you get off that stage, people are going to remember what you said. What would you say? What does the world need to hear? Man. I'll take a drink for a second. <laughs> take your time. It might take me 10 minutes to answer this five-minute moment question. <laughs> That's a big question right there. Um, I kind of hope I never have that opportunity. <laughs> I would hope you do. <laughs> I do hope I have it. And I think in the moment it would be very spontaneous because you're given five minutes. And I'm mm -hmm. sure as hell I'm not going to spend five minutes trying to decide because yeah. that means I did yeah. nothing. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be a five-minute answer. But it's no. what, what would you touch on? Um. Well, if I was on a stage, I would most likely have a, a piano in front of me or a guitar, and I might play a song. And the first song that actually comes to my mind is a song I wrote called Love is a Damn Good Thing. And it's kind of like an anthem just about, I believe love is the most powerful thing that mm -hmm. we have yeah. to experience and to, and to offer to others to experience. And it's just the idea that it's not a safe thing. When I wrote the song, I, I say that in the song, you know, it's be careful if you try it because you'll never be the same. That's one of the lines in the song. Yeah. And uh, I guess... If there's some message I would want to communicate to the world is, is love. And to paint the picture that there's no fear in love. And then yeah. the Bible actually says that too. Um, I didn't even mean to quote the Bible, but that's just the, <laughs> that's just the God yeah. honest truth, man. Yeah. Like yeah. there's no there's no fear in it. Yeah. And for whatever reason, as soon as you ask that question, that song popped into my mind. And I've been playing it on my live streams, and I had never really played it out a lot because it's mm -hmm. kind of... Yeah. yeah, and a lot of people have been like calm like I want to hear that song again and uh, it hits home a lot more now because I just went through this breakup but I think in that moment yeah I guess the message I would want to say in five minutes to all these people is I want to see that room when I play that song I want, it's a very easy song to sing I, want to, I would love to see everybody just singing that together and mm -hmm. like regardless of sexual preference race religion just that theme and that idea and that concept it eliminates all of that it's just its own thing and it permeates through everything and that everybody would I don't know they would know that that's more valuable than anything else and I think that's the definition of God and mm -hmm. the universe or what all, all these different labels people give it I think love is one that everybody can kind of relate to and yeah. that's the message okay. I'd want to communicate because I think that's the message that I need to hear yeah. And you need to hear and everybody else, so. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. 
What is the one thing that you're most proud of Josh for today from your whole life? What's the thing that you'd know at the end of the day that you can say, damn it, I'm proud of myself for doing this, for overcoming this, for mm. getting here, for... You know, I guess, and I don't, you know, I, I'm a pretty prideful person, but when it comes down to me actually saying what I'm proud of, I feel like I'm, the first thing I say is I think you have nothing to be proud of, man, which is actually an arrogant thing to say, as confusing as that is. Um, I think that... That's the ego wanting to say something, to yeah. keep you in check. Yeah. Or to, to keep you back where you're to, not. Yeah. Um, honestly, dude... And I, this doesn't actually sound like an achievement because I don't really like when people rate themselves as like, oh, you know, I got, I won this award or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I won an award before. But like, I would say the thing that I'm the most proud of myself for is I think I'm a very honest person. I would give you that. And I think that that's one thing. Honesty is one of those given like math. Mm -hmm. You either are being honest or you're not. There's no yeah. like gray area. Yeah. And I think that I'm honest. It allows me to be able to trust myself to some level. And it, I just know that when I'm communicating with a person, I'm being honest. Or yourself. You're being yeah, honest with yourself. Exactly. You're not telling yourself a bunch yeah. of crock that's not serving exactly. you. So yeah, the thing that I would be most proud of myself for is I can say one thing is for certain about me is I'm honest. And I'm going to be honest. Yeah. And I'm proud of myself for that because it's not easy. I love it's it. It's not easy, man. And it's why you lose things and you get things. I mean, it has negative and positive yeah. effects on your life. But it's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Last question. If you could ask anyone in the world any question, alive or dead, who would that be and what would the question be? Oh my be? goodness. I think it'd be smart to talk to Jesus if he existed. What's the question? Man, you're hitting me with some... You should have asked me that before I was down here on this drink. We should have started with the hard questions because now I feel like the answers I give are going to be a little bit... Influenced by the drink I'm drinking. Uh, That's okay. That brings out the honesty. Or do, does it? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, man, I, I do think that you would want to ask the most significant person. And I imagine a lot of people watching this podcast, um, if I said Jesus, would be like, that guy's crazy. But uh, because I've definitely, I've definitely gone on a journey with my faith. I don't really know what I believe at this point mm -hmm. when it comes to religion and God and all that. And the whole concept of Jesus has been very, was always kind of foreign from my, mm -hmm. from my upbringing. Um, but given that he was real, I, I feel like it would be, you obviously you want to ask the wisest person, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. There's no right or wrong answer to this. Man. If you could ask anyone in the world one anyone question. Anyone in the world. What would it be? I want to know what David Archuleta said. <laughs> you have to watch the show. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have to watch the show. I actually love his answer. Maybe I'd ask myself a question. I don't know. No, I definitely wouldn't. I'd ask myself why I'm so hard on myself. Um, well, I don't like this question. It feels so <laughs> final. It feels like this one question is going to determine the rest of my life. I guess I would ask God, Jesus, whatever. What am I doing here? What am I doing? Okay. Here? What is my what, my purpose? And I and the funny thing is, I think I already know the answer, but I feel like I would still ask the question just for some sort of confirmation that I would. I feel like I'm always asking that question, like, what am I? What is my life for? Now I'm gonna turn that back around on you. How would you answer that question if I asked you that question? 
That's dude. <laughs> did you come up with that? Or did you did you find that on Google? You're like the best, the best question, the best question find, set up in history. That was. A I good, didn't find that on Google. That's awesome, man. I don't know what self help book that came out of. <laughs> uh, what do you feel like your mission is? How can you make a difference? How can Josh make a difference? If I turn that question on me, well, I have an answer to that, and that's a lot easier. Okay. The answer to that question. It comes from a story, and I actually, I played, uh, you ever heard of Leo Tolstoy? He was a, he was a um, Russian philosopher. Amazing I don't guy. don't think I have, no. Yeah, he has a book called War and Peace, and in this book, it's a big book, and I've never read it. I've only mm-hmm. read this one story out of it. Okay. And it's all a bunch of philosophy. Um, but he has a story. And in the story, there's a king of this kingdom who approaches a hermit and asks, he said, I have three questions for you. He says, I want to know the most important person, um, the most important time, and the most important thing to do. And I probably put that out of order. And that immediately when you asked me the question, well, about 30 seconds after I could process it, that's what came to mind. Mm -hmm. And long story short, spoiler alert, I'm gonna just give it all away. There's some things that take place while he's with the hermit. And he's teaching him lessons as those things are happening. And what he summarizes, the summary of the whole thing is that the most important person is the one right in front of you. The most important time is now, because it's the only time you have. And the most important thing to do is do that person good. And so to answer your question... Gave me chills. <laughs> chills. To answer your question and to answer my own question, what is my purpose? That's why I told you I didn't even need to ask the damn question because I should already know. Mm-hmm. My purpose is to, is to do the person good right in front of me at this moment in time right now. So what thank, a great answer. Thanks, God. What a great answer. Brother, I just want to acknowledge you for... I mean, ever since I've known you, you've been always been completely transparent. I know what you said. I feel like you're one of the most honest dudes I know. Thanks, man. Um, likewise. Likewise. Yeah. And it's easy to thank be you. honest with an honest person. <laughs> and a vulnerable person. Well, thank you. Well, it, it's, it's just... I mean, I, I think you have an amazing story coming from where you came from to... Overcoming, I I personally can vouch and know and understand the hurdles you have to overcome to come yeah. out of a society like that yeah. and to figure out where and how you belong in the world. Yeah, and dude, you're killing it. You're you may not feel like you're there, but I watch you and I'm just like this guy is like your music. It speaks to not That's just me, but to something like I told you yesterday. I have friends who are like, hey, who's that guy? And that means a lot. Yeah, and I, I can't wait for the world to get to know who you are. I think you bring so much greatness to the world. And I think everyone that gets to meet you will benefit from knowing you. Um, You just bring that to people. So I want to thank you for being here. And we're going to end with this, but we're going to have to do it again. Because, I mean, there's so much more to you that we didn't have time to get to. Let's do it. Sorry if I was too long-winded. No, no, no. This was fun, man. Yeah, for sure. Cheers. I'm I'm out now. But yeah. All right. Thanks again for tuning in to The Ultimate Shift. Look, I know life is crazy. Life gets busy. And we all kind of have an idea of where we want to go and where we want to end up. But there's so many things that come up in between. And my goal with this show is to grab one thing from every guest that we can apply to our lives that help get us closer to our end goal. You can follow me on Instagram at Ephraim Glick, Facebook at Ephraim Glick, Twitter at Glick Ephraim, or you can go to the website at EphraimGlick.com. See you next time.